Hey, listeners, please support the Business of Pharmacy podcast by checking out our sponsors at bizofpharmpod.com. That link is in the description. You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Tim, for those that haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we're going to talk about today. My name is Tim Albrecht. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Your Financial Pharmacist, where we help pharmacists at all stages of their career and lives achieve financial freedom. Today, we're going to build upon the discussion we had last time talking about the value and the ROI of the pharmacy degree and the college experience. And we'll touch on that a little bit, but we're going to shift gears and talk about some of the evolutions that we're seeing in technology. A little bit about chat GPT-3 and how this might impact us as a profession, and perhaps even look at what are some things that folks are doing to take some risks or calculated risks out there as we look at the impact of this technology and what might be the future state of our profession as a result of this. Tim, what are your new experiences being out on your own versus having Ohio State's logo still on your paycheck? as an owner, determining what you're going to take home as compensation and how much should I reinvest in the business and my team versus taking home. There's a lot to unpack there. But there's a whole nother layer that is probably one of the areas I didn't really anticipate as much when I made that transition, which is just so much of the, I don't know if you want to call it inner work or kind of working through your own head trash or your fears or self-limiting belief, whatever you want to call it, that You are protected as an employee to, I think, often not have to face that version of yourself and have those conversations. When you are out there growing a business, whether you have a team or you don't have a team, and it's you sitting down with yourself, trying to identify where am I going and why am I going? What am I trying to achieve? Wow. Like that's the hard but transformative work that I didn't see coming in the last year and a half that. I don't think that there's certainly stresses of the business, but I did not see the value of that work being a piece of this transition. And so I'd love to even hear your thoughts. You've been at this much, much longer than I have, but like those are experiences that if I would have stayed on my academic track for 30 years, I don't know if I would have ever had that look in the mirror and have had to dig deep and done some of that self-reflection and growth. You and I have talked on your show about where do you come up with your visions and goals and feelings Mm -hmm. that and so on. And pretty much for me is all of that really starts on my to-do list. Every thought I have really goes into my do list. And that could be anything from conquer the world. And the next thing on there is buy more Sharpie markers or something like that, because it's all on your mind. It's all there. And if you spend too much time thinking about your role in the world, you're going to forget to order the Sharpie markers. And if you spend too much time in the Sharpie markers, you're going to forget your goals in the world and so on. And I guess as a business owner, you don't really get the luxury of even deciding where you're thinking in the moment. You want to be in a spot where you're in the quadrant of important things that are not urgent. Those get forgotten about a lot. As a parent and a business owner, daily, you've got to be thinking about your, you know, the dog food and what life's going to look like 20 years from now. You're spinning through these thoughts like every 10 minutes you're going through, okay, short-term goal, long-term goal. And 
practically every 10 minutes you're thinking, why am I doing this? You don't get the luxury of that when you're not a business owner. And I don't think I would trade that for the world. Couldn't agree with you more, Mike. Parenting is such a great example, right? I've got four boys. You've gotten me beat on the uh, n- number of children category and, and phase of, of life that they're in. But of what I've experienced so far, why it's such a great example of business, I've often said that just like business, parenting has really shown a light on so many limitations that have always been there. I just don't know if I've been honest with how they've been there and had to really address them and deal with them. But we can plan the best that we can and put all these tasks in these different quadrants. But whether it's business or parenting, like guess what? Tomorrow's going to throw things at us that we don't know are coming. I would even argue my experience so far in building the business is guess what? Sometimes you just got to be in the putting out the fires. And then there's a time and a phase for I'm going to develop the systems and the processes and I'm going to hire the people and I'm going to step out and let it grow and delegate and let it flourish. But if we're not careful, like, guess what? Sometimes you just got to grind it out as you're building something and you just got to jump in and it's going to be messy and it's not going to be perfect. And if you try to overlay all these automations and systems and processes, all the things that we know we need to do over the long run and hire the people, it ain't going to work until sometimes we just get in there and iterate and test and figure it out. And then And then when it's validated and we know we've kind of worked out the kinks and somebody can probably do it better than we can, okay, now let's bring in the person. We validate a model. Let's operationalize this and scale it and grow it and do all these things. But if we start there, it's not going to work always. And so I think that even having that flexibility of mindset of using the quadrants as an example in business or in in parenting, I think of my four boys and how different they are and how different the seasons and the days can be and how I approach my three-year-old and how I approach my 11-year-old guess what? They need to be very different. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so yeah, that's that's a great point. I think the beauty of that, Tim, you hear about that with the Chinese, they've got the yin-yang. It's a balance between chaos and order. Jordan Peterson, a psychiatrist mm-hmm. online, spends a lot of time on this, but that's where I love to be, Tim. And as an owner, typically you have that ability. You wake up in the morning and you want a little bit more chaos. So you bring a little bit of that and you think about it. And then later in the day, there's too much chaos and you want to bring some (laughs) order in. So you say, we're going to touch on that tomorrow. And there's a beautiful line to walk down. And you'd think you'd have less control of that when you're an owner, but you really don't have control of that when you're an employee. And the beauty of ownership, for me at least, is I hate being bored and I hate being too frazzled, but right middle is really nice. Yeah. And I would just add to that because I'm with you on that is sometimes I like to ruffle the feathers and what can we do that can grow and evolve and test test something different. And there's other times where it's like, we, we need some systems and a little bit of peace. This is kind of cliche, but pharmacists are known for doing what's in front of them. And that's a real beautiful spot to be sometimes too, where we talked about this author, David Allen, Tim, mm-hmm. and He said one of his times where he felt most at peace was when he woke up and a storm had come up. It was on his boat that was about ready to crash into the rocks. And he Mm -hmm. looked up at the moon and said he just felt this overwhelming peace because he knew where he was supposed to be in that moment, Mm -hmm. which of course was to save the boat and his wife who was sleeping. And as you and I were talking, we don't always get that as owners. We think this needs to be tweaked and that needs to be tweaked. We rarely fall into a space, and rightfully so, and thankfully we're not content. But there's a 
beautiful thing of sometimes showing up to work and someone says, mm-hmm. do this for eight hours. And there's some beauty in that. Yeah. There, I think there, and I think this goes back to like some honest self-reflection about who you are and what do you want. And as much as I'm bullish on, as much as I'm bullish on business ownership and entrepreneurship, like I recognize that aligns with my personality and my skill set. I'm not here to advocate. And I often, you know, am wondering like, is that message coming across? And I don't want it to, I'm not advocating that entrepreneurship is for everyone. It's, It's not. And I actually think there's somewhat of an over glorification of entrepreneurship that's going on right now that in part because of social media and a lot of other factors uh, we see these companies going IPO and these unicorn businesses and it's like you and I both know that if you look at the success rates of small business they're not great and for those that are quote successful many people are grinding it out for a long period of time and perhaps they're building wealth because of growth in the business over time because of real estate and other things, but it's not the glorification of going public with a stock and becoming a billionaire overnight. But there's this over glorification that I think is happening and somewhat of a false portrayal of what the lifestyle of an entrepreneur looks like. And I wouldn't trade it for the world, but I also, your comment about there's something peaceful for many people about, hey, I know exactly what's expected for me and I get here at eight and I leave at five. And I don't have to carry this home with me and some of the stress and unknowns. Like, I get it. I get it. I'm not here to say, like, go be an entrepreneur. Like, that, that's not it. Tim, so a year and a half ago, you left some of the more traditional stuff mm-hmm. to finally go full time into your financial business. Has there ever been a point for you, either a dream or pressure or question to say, is pharmacy too narrow? Sometimes I'll do that just thinking to myself with a podcast and I'm like, is pharmacy too narrow? It's like, no, because as soon as I jump out into the non-narrowness of pharmacy talking about business, well, who's going to listen to this old guy instead of Simon Sinek or some leadership guy or Rogan? There's no reason because it's smaller I can do a better job because I know pharmacy. So there's no way that any of those guys mentioned could do a better job in pharmacy. I mean, they might have some nuggets, but an overall show, this is the best spot for me. When you think about that with financial, will this be the best spot for you? Do you dabble in thinking, I could multiply this 10 times if I wasn't with these low-life pharmacists? (laughs) It's interesting that you bring up this question because if I had to say what is the most common question I get from other pharmacy entrepreneurs out there, it's why just pharmacy? Like, haven't you thought about dentists or veterinarians or why don't you broaden out to at least a bigger niche like healthcare? Why are you kind of boxing yourself in? And before I kind of answer how I typically think through that, One of the things I've tried to do is not only in answering that question, but also just thinking about where we're going over the next five or 10 years is how much of the response to that is ego, right? So how much of that is where am I trying to go and what does success look like and what am I chasing? I think another part is really being honest with yourself about like, are there any self-limiting beliefs that are impacting your answer to that question? So I, I say that because I think for some people... Maybe the umbrella is bigger than pharmacy, 
but it's because of their beliefs of what's possible that they're saying, no, I really need to stay in my lane. Okay. And then I think the third part to answering that question is really what work is still to be done within the niche before you even kind of consider what else may be out there for us as we think about pharmacy. And that that's where I go with really as I answer this question as it relates to YFP. There's 300 plus thousand pharmacists that are out there in the country. And if I look at those that we're working with in terms of monetizing the work and the business that we're doing, scratching the surface is really the best way that I can put it. And we certainly have made, I think, incredible progress in growing the business and the awareness of the brand nationally and all these things. But I truly believe the mission of the work that we're doing is to really put a dent in the financial wellness of the profession of pharmacy so that when I think back in 20, 30, 40 years, maybe I'm doing this, maybe somebody yeah. else is picking up the work. It's not about what have Tim and Tim done. It's about the work of YFP and the mission towards helping pharmacists achieve financial freedom that because we can make an impact on financial literacy in the profession and deadness of pharmacy graduates, can, can we really make some inroads there? Can we implement curriculums across all 140 plus colleges that really address this topic? Can we really move forward pharmacy entrepreneurship? And then what is the impact of the tentacles of that work? We are just getting started on that journey. So the other piece I often think about is the reason I got into this in 2015 is that I started talking about this as a pharmacist to other pharmacists about my financial journey and financial wellness, because nobody else was talking about this in pharmacy in terms of sharing about the journeys and the debt loads and the goals. We see examples that were out there in medicine. There's some examples out there in other professions. So our unique advantage, our differential advantage over the last seven years in growing the business has been the inroads in the profession. So I'll never say never. I think I'm open to that as we we look at where the business may go into the future or who knows, maybe we'll wake up in five years and for whatever reason, we're not in the seat of running this business and someone else is and you know what's on the horizon in the future. But for me, when I think about the 10-year vision of YFP, all of that is still within the profession of pharmacy. I think it's easier for people, especially when maybe a business isn't going well, they think that the market's too small. And it's like, yeah, but you haven't done anything in this market yet. Antonio Chacha said it best. We were talking about like grassroots advocacy and a lot of people, they want to jump right into federal, you know, and he's like, listen, you haven't even changed this thing in your county yet. Don't think so high on that. So some people can do it too fast, I suppose. Well, and he's a great example. I got a chance to work with Antonio here in Ohio for yeah, a better right. part of a decade. And I saw the, I mean, the playbook of what he did is the playbook of growing a business. It's be, being patient and getting compounding wins that you can build upon. And he transformed the profession of pharmacy in the state of Ohio, which obviously he's now taken to a national platform and through that credibility and through those achievements has been able to have inroads. But if you jump into those things on the federal level, and I think the same is true in growing a business. And that kind of gets back to my comment about overglorification of entrepreneurship is that yeah. when I look back at what we've been doing over seven years, and now we really start to see some of the exponential growth in whatever metric you want to look at. Is it business revenue? Is it following of the brand? Whatever. But guess what? A lot of that time is spent building. You're putting one block on top of another. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really believe patience is the na name of the game, especially when you're building business as well. And, and that's hard because I think there's so much pressure from folks out there right now of like, grow a business, launch it, monetize it, get a massive following. I think those are so rare. Like it is having a big vision that you care about and developing a product, a service or solution 
that's going to solve a problem that people are willing to care about. And that yeah. takes time to build and to yeah. do. And I'm just fearful that folks may see that path as being easier than it really is. Sometimes, unfortunately, unless you're one of the early ones, let's say you see someone on social media doing something. As soon as you see them doing it, in a way, it's too late for you unless you've narrowed down the niche somehow the niche. or something like that. As soon as you see Neil Armstrong in 1969 on TV walking on the moon and you say, I'm going to walk on the moon, it's like too late. I mean, not just because he's the first one, but because it was years and years of that. So people seeing even the quick social media burst on certain networks that ship has sailed already. Yeah. Two or three years ago was where the big response is. Now you got to open up for the next thing in business in general. And so, yeah, to your point, Tim, it doesn't happen overnight and it's not going to happen overnight if you see it happening, basically. That is for sure. One of the cool things, Mike, on this journey over the last year and a half is I get to have conversations like this on the regular each week. And I'm sure you would say the same, like yeah. running the podcast each week I mean, we're getting ready to get to episode 300, which has been fun. Wow, but congratulations. That, that is, thank you. That, that One of the neatest parts of that journey has been just having all of these conversations and meeting yeah. really interesting people, right, that, that yeah. are on this journey. And one of the things I often hear when I talk with folks that are on the front part of exploring pharmacy, entrepreneurship, side hustles, whatever you want to call it, I think they often are kind of leaving themselves too vague, too broad. As they build out a website yeah. or business, usually I'll be quick to kind of look at that website and say like, what are you offering and who is your target audience? Because it feels like something's being built and you're trying to kind of make it for everyone. And I think some of that just comes from, to the conversation we're having, some of that comes from this fear of like, am I thinking too small? And I can appreciate that thought, but you know, as you and I know, both know, if I try to build the generic financial business. I mean, maybe I'll have success. Maybe I won't, but guess what? There's a lot of those out there, a lot of those out there. And I really believe to the comment I made earlier, I really believe that business is on some level becoming a commodity. And I think we'll see that within my lifetime. And so how do you further differentiate yourself in a market? Um, what's your differential advantage? What's your unique advantage that not to say someone can't enter the space as well, but you know, over time that may become a little bit more difficult to penetrate. And then also something that obviously aligns with the passion that you have and the impact that you want to have. And if all of those things line up and you can charge for whatever product or service in a way that you're building something profitable, I think that's where the magical experience can be. Seth Godin, I like his Great stuff writer. in marketing. And yeah. one of the things he says is build your business on the smallest viable market. So yep. as soon as you find a market that you can make it with, stop. Maybe do it in another market. If you don't stop and then you go broad, someone else who that's enough for them, that's their viable market, they're going to come in and take it. Mm -hmm. So you got to be careful before you go too wide. You have to have enough to get up there, but then if you go too wide, you've got some troubles coming. Yeah. And then the messaging becomes really hard. And I think if we just put ourselves in the user standpoint, we all open our inboxes. I mean, I just went through and deleted 50, 60 messages before we got onto the call today. All these lists I'm opted into and subscribed. And I think when we're writing them, we think like, oh, everyone's hanging on every word I'm writing. And what about this? And the broader you go, the harder it is to get attention from people and to actually speak to them in a meaningful way. And when I think about our business as one example, pharmacy finance 
on some level, I can speak to the audience, just I know niche and finance, but even within that, we're often trying to segment like, okay, are you a new practitioner? Are you a student? Are you middle of your career? Are you approaching retirement? Are you interested in taxes? Are you trying to buy a home? Are you more interested in investing? And if we can get to that level of customization of, okay, Mike is a pharmacist who's an independent owner who's trying to optimize his tax situation, and I can speak to that because of that segmentation, I've got a better chance to cut through the noise. And I think only in a niche can you get to that level of segmentation and then directly speaking in a way that hopefully your product or service, you can draw a straight line between that solution and the problem that someone has. I had that with the podcast. There was a podcast show that kind of got on me for naming mine the business of pharmacy. And this person's like, that's my niche. It's like, no, your niche is general pharmacy podcast. The fact that I've gone smaller into the business of pharmacy, that precludes me from a lot of the stuff this person could do. Not that I want to, but I'm not going to have a show on the chemical structures and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And there's going to be other podcasts that niche down further. They're going to say, well, I'm not the business of pharmacy. I'm the- Business uh, of independent pharmacy. Business or, of independent, yeah. or the women's exactly. business, something like that. It's like, that's my fault. I've got to my viable market. I could go narrower, but you're going to lose out. And if you go higher, you lose out. That's where you fall into your space. Yeah. And let me challenge folks. And I'm not, there is no judgment when I'm saying I, I have fallen into this trap, but maybe I see someone out there who's doing something on personal finance and pharmacy. And, and if you're not careful, if you get hung up into that, like to me, that's a really interesting indicator of some underlying fear and some of the self-limiting beliefs that we have inside. And, and I think that a firm believer to say competition isn't real, um, but with so much need out there, we talked about more than 300,000 pharmacists, like there is value in, if there's more conversation happening on this topic, whether I'm leading it alone or we have two or three other people, like that's good for the overall efforts, right? Of what we're trying to do. So um, I don't know. I just think we got to be careful about that in a niche profession of a co competition among businesses and pharmacy entrepreneurs and other things. Like there, there's a lot of work to be done. But I, I think there's, there is so much opportunity within our profession. Anytime I hear the mass complaints about the profession and the workforce challenges and all these things that all the state boards are looking at, not to minimize any of those concerns, but that means that we are ripe for disruption and innovation. Now, we may or may not like the outcome of what comes from that, but it's coming. The train has left the station for disruption and innovation. And so if you're opportunistic and you're thinking like an entrepreneur, when you look at metrics like healthcare outcomes and shortages of, of staffing and workplace condition challenges, there's solutions in there that are prime for some business opportunities. Now, what do those look like? And does our ego and our profession like the outcome of that? We're going to find out you know, here in the next decade, but there, there's a lot of opportunity for disruption and innovation. It's interesting that you mentioned the train leaving the station. Most people know it by now, chat GPT, the artificial intelligence writing and so on. It's interesting because you and I growing up, you always heard that the artificial intelligence was going to hit from the blue up. The blue collar up is going to be hamburger flippers and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think many people thought that this was coming from the top down, attorneys and writers and pharmacists and everything like that. Chat GPT is a really interesting example and one I've been trying to understand and digest and interact with and play with myself. Think about what does this mean for, you know, my wife and I have had multiple conversations late at night, perhaps with a glass of wine or two, but what, what does this mean for our kids or our homeschool and what's important? And, and I say that because I think what we need to be doing 
whether it relates to the professional pharmacy, whether it relates to our children and education, is we need to be engaging with the conversation. And it feels like in the conversations I've been having, Mike, it feels like there's sort of this two-ended discussion of like, chat GPT is this next huge wave that every one of these jobs is going to be gone tomorrow. And then there's this other end of the spectrum that's like an instant objection to the technology and like, ah, no, it can't really do, you know, what it says it can do. And I don't know enough about it yet to conclude where we are, but I have a feeling we're in between those somewhere. And the only way we can have meaningful discussions about how might pharmacy education be impacted by this? How might the professional pharmacy be impacted by this? What does this look like for challenges of jobs and opportunities for jobs? And I've been thinking about how we can leverage and utilize technology in the business. The only way we get there is by one, having an open mind to learning, understanding, interacting with it, and having some conversations and discussions that perhaps include both ends of those spectrums and some in-betweens. And It feels like to me, maybe this is my bias of spending more than a decade in academia. It feels like to me, there's going to be kind of this instant resistance from like an academic setting where the knee jerk reaction is like, oh, well, we need to then test in ways that we can ensure they didn't use chat GPT. And to me, it's like, is that missing the point? Like maybe that's a knee jerk response for the next few years, but is testing and assessing in a way that we know a student doesn't use chat GPT, meaning that like they come into the classroom, we watch them, we make sure that like, are we missing the point? Are we missing the point about what skills are necessary and essential, which are not, and how do we adopt? I mean, that to me is a conversation we need to be happening and needs to be happening. And I just hope that we're going to be open to that. And whether that's in educational models, K through 12, higher education, whether it's relates to What does this mean for patient counseling and education and big box farm? I mean, all these conversations, I think are really interesting Um, and time will tell, but I guess my hope and encouragement would be, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. Let's debate it and let's beat it up. If you think about all the strides that have been made in pharmacy, it's like the death rate. I know COVID's involved, but the death age has gone down. It's like, I don't know, 78 years old in America, maybe it was 79 a couple years ago. It's like, there's a lot of technology out there, but not a lot of it has improved the life expectancy. And so you look at things like chat GPT and you say, can something like that help? So schools are no longer thinking about the stuff you just mentioned whether it's fake or real, get away from that. And maybe once you get rid of that, maybe some ideas come in because all the monkey work, all the Mm -hmm. writing and stuff like that has taken place. So maybe it allows for more ideas to come to let's raise the life expectancy up to 85. Instead of you and I spending two hours writing an email, you know, multiply that by billions and maybe that thought process can go into helping things that matter. And that's a great example of like, is it somewhere in the middle here, right? I've thought of things like emails that I'll labor over about the right word or this or that, that have inconsequential significance in the scheme of everything else that are taking up time. But then there, I think are other things, like my wife and I were talking the other night, our boys in their homeschool curriculum, it's very heavy. It's a classical education, very heavily focused on like understanding the anatomy of grammar construct. I mean, levels of grammar that like I've 
obviously never learned or faked my way through one or the other. I don't know which. And it's interesting because we were talking about like, if you look at the output of ChatGPT, like it arguably can, even in the current version, and we know that the four versions coming out a little bit that everyone says who has seen it, like just wait until number four comes out. But the output of it, like when I've used it with the prompts, granted, you got to get better at asking the right questions, which is another skill. Like maybe Sure, right there. Exactly. Yeah. But you look at the output and you're like, that's pretty darn good. My wife used to work as a um, PR coordinator for a small community hospital. And one of her tasks that she often would do is they would write a press release for a new CEO is hired or they're opening a breast cancer surgery center, whatever. And so we said like, hey, chat GPT, like... Madison County Hospital, the hospital she used to work for here in London, Ohio, is opening a new breast cancer surgery center, and we gave it some other parameters. Write a press release. Yeah. And guess what? It was really good. Like yes. It was oh, really sure. good. And, but what was interesting about the conversation is we said, okay, does that change the need for kind of the early levels of education around grammar and grammar construct and all these details? And we're like, I don't know. Like You look at the output of ChatGPT, and you're like, well, that's really good or bad. And you only know or understand that yeah. because of having the foundation and the backbone of to, to know what is good or to know what is okay or to know what is bad. And so I heard a podcast last week or the week before of a English high school teacher that was starting to kind of play with it and bring it into the curriculum. And one of the takeaways that, that she had was it really challenges you to really think about the questions you're asking um, and maybe less about the grammatical output and the quality and, the, and obviously the time spent and kind of tinkering that to go from okay to good to great. So I don't know. There is just so much application. Obviously, the decision and how this does or doesn't transform our K through 12 educational system versus, hey, could it be used to more efficiently write an email? Well, those are very different conversations and consequences. And I, I guess one of my fears though, Mike, is, and I'll throw higher education under the bus because I lived in it for a decade. Like, can we move fast enough? Are we open and willing, number one, are we open and willing to have these conversations without fears or threats and really have an open mind? And number two, if we come to a conclusion or conclusions that maybe involve some type of pivot, or change, disruption, whatever that look like, can we actually move quickly enough, right? Yeah. You think about accreditation standards or curriculums and other things. Yep. And- I don't think we can right now. I mean, I don't know how that might change in the future, but my fear is that model at large is very antiquated in terms of its ability to move and move quickly with how technology is progressing and advancing. I guess in a way, it doesn't have to be fast enough, but it might be trampled. Google has these six-month programs that get certification and so on. And it's like they trampled over taking a 19-year-old and having them learn English again or whatever again. Thinking about the chat GPT, I guess in a way you could think of what happened with the calculator as far as knowing the math versus just learning it That's and a, just learning yes. it to learn. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, Tim, what you said about the right questions, because just for an example, I'll do a little social media paragraph to introduce the week's podcast. And typically, I would just say, I'm just going to write the damn thing. You know, listen to this, if this and that, and here's this and that. With ChatGPT, you throw it in there and you say, okay, I want this. And you look at it and you say, 
you know what? Let's focus that more on pharmacists because I didn't say anything in there about pharmacists being, you know, we talked about this earlier, the niche of that. And then it's pharmacists. And it's like, it sounds like I'm telling people to do this, make it a little bit more inviting. The more thing inviting, is, is, more casual. More, more yeah. casual. And let's put a challenge in there about this or that. That stuff you didn't have time for before when you were writing, you were thankful just to get it in there without a spelling mistake yes. and without saying something too stupid. And so within a week, you know that, within a week of using the chat GPT, you're like, I got to phrase this a little bit differently. And yeah. how much will that help human interaction? Just to say, okay, boy, chat GPT has already taught me to phrase my wants better that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think it's teaching the iteration too, right? You mentioned an initial prompt and then you're going back and interacting with it, which I think is a fascinating mm -hmm. part of the technology. But let's apply a pharmacy example here. So I go to the pharmacy, I pick up my prescription for furosemide. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I walk into the stores busy, phones are ringing. I don't want to bother the pharmacist. I don't want to ask them questions. Maybe I'm nervous about taking this for the first time. They yeah. ask me, sign here. Do you have any questions? I walk out the door. Well, what if instead, whether it's in the comfort of my own home or technology where there's not that pressure and time yeah. involved that I could say, hey, chat GPT, like, tell me the three most important things that I need to know about taking furosemide. Iterate with it. Oh, I also take these two other medications. What changes here? Or can you give me that at a third grade level instead of a 12th grade level? Or could you translate that into a different link? I mean, just the iteration and how quickly it can, without being dependent upon somebody being there at a certain time, being available, who's willing and engaged. And we might not want to hear that as pharmacists, but let's talk about that. Like, is that a better outcome for patients or not? I don't know yet, but like we, we need to be open and ready to having these conversations. Yeah. And then, you know, there's things like, you're like, well, since you came up with that, it's like, my lighting's not very good in my house and my left hand sometimes goes numb, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. and it throws that in there. It's like, oh, well, now we, now we cover yeah. that. Sometimes I get a little bored taking my medicine, you know, what psychologically is going on with me there? I mean, it does so much that it's like the calculator in a way. It does so much. You're doing things you didn't even think were out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I would just encourage folks. I would put myself in the novice at best category of just Listen at podcasts on this, re reading articles, uh, downloading apps, interacting with the technology, um, but just to engage with it and make your own initial conclusions, have some discussions and debates. And I think for my colleagues that are in academia, really hope that this is a conversation at faculty meetings, really do of what does this mean? And my hope is the response and focus is not one out of fear of oh, how do we change the way we assess so we know they're not using chat GPT? And maybe that's necessary in the short term. I get that. But really is one more of what does this mean, bigger picture, and where are we going in the future? Well, I imagine colleges had never been faced with what some businesses are where if you own a pharmacy, you find out a pharmacy is going up across the street and they're going to be there in two months or something like that. Mm -hmm. Colleges have had the luxury of having their big brick buildings and saying something might change in 25 years. Let's start to stroke our beard a little bit and think about it. Yeah, but you gave me a great example, you know, just a few minutes ago with Google. You know, we had one of our team members recently that like we have a real need in our business to kind of better optimize and understand our search engine optimization, SEO. Um, and she self-taught on her own pace, her own schedule, a SEO course. I think it was through UC Davis in partnership with Google or someone. And now is directly applying those skills to the business and 
She's a working mom with two kids, helping her sister watch other kids, busy schedule. So the idea of getting an education at a fixed time of the day with a high price point, disruption's coming. <laughs> like those are two barriers that like in today's day and age, I often say to my boys, like, if you want to learn anything, you can learn anything in 2023. The key is, do you have the curiosity of learning and the willingness to go figure it out. Like that is the piece, the information is there. And so this construct in this idea, and obviously because of regulations and accreditation standards and licenses and all other reasons, we're gonna hold on to this model probably longer than I think the free market normally would. Um, but, you know, this idea that I go for this product at a, specific point in time at a schedule and everyone is on the same track regardless of their abilities to learn and based on schedules of availability when people are there oh and by the way it's extremely expensive like yeah oh my gosh like that without question that model is going to be disrupted for my children we just have somebody do this at home on their own time period we don't have to have these big brick buildings that there's really no reason to have these big brick buildings and the big brick dorms so that the kids can be close to the big brick buildings that don't really have a meaning per se. Yeah. And I'm intentionally being provocative because I'm passionate about the transformation that really needs to happen. And I think higher education has a role, has a value, but like we we need to think differently. And I think there's some handcuffs that are on that. Um, one would be accreditation standards. You know, you look at the process now, we're in pharmacy, we, 2016 was the last standards. We're now implementing, I think it's standards 2025. Any academic people, I'm wrong on that. It's been a while since I've been in it. The time period, so we're talking about a 10-year time period where a change happened, we got input, and now we're rolling out new standards. So you have some real limitations on it with things like accreditation. I'll throw 10-year faculty into the mix. How do you really disrupt a business model when you've got a huge percentage of your folks that are protected, like no other business does does that model exist hopefully i'm tenured at my spot but <laughs> i don't know but these are real barriers that like i mean, talk about like either you disrupt and you evolved or you get trampled on like the academic institutions are going to really have to figure this out as we go into the future and i think we're starting to see a little bit of it happening but it's going to come it's going to come quickly plus you got the parents that are dishing out sometimes a ton of money. And then you've got the model where the first couple years, half of it's liberal arts. And you've got a parent saying, I don't agree with the stuff that's being taught in this university or this university. And my kids got to sit through that in order to get their degree and things like that. People want choices. I think they're going to take advantage of those choices. Mike, here's an idea I would love your feedback on. I've been thinking, my wife and I have been talking about this for four or five years now. What, what if we really went back to more of an apprenticeship-based model. I've often thought about the concept of a gap year and combining that with an apprenticeship focus. What what if you formed a network, could be business owners, friends, colleagues, or whatever, and it's like, hey, guess what? My my son is going to spend a month with Mike and his pharmacy after high school. Uh, maybe he goes down to Texas with my good friend who's a pastor and gets a totally different experience with him and my other buddy up in Northeast Ohio who was growing an arm of an insurance company working on healthcare insurance, my brother who runs a manufacturing company in Buffalo, New York. Like, I mean, to me, like if I think about, I'm not saying there's not then a place for a traditional education. I actually 
didn't at the time of being in pharmacy school, but can appreciate the value of a really strong liberal arts foundation. I really appreciate the value of a lot of the on-campus experiences I had and the maturity and the growth through that. But what if that jump, I feel like of, hey, you're 18, you got to know what you're going to do, what's your major? Like, what would happen if we had a year or two of kind of this apprenticeship type of model and almost this concept of like forming a network of people that would do that? A few thoughts on that, Tim. One of my daughters, she says she's going into beauty, beautician. Mm. She kind of runs our household. She's one of the younger ones. Here's the problem, Tim. With kids, our two youngest, who were once two and five, are now 12 and 15, mm-hmm. but they still get their way like they're two and five. Yeah, you know, I see because that coming they, with they my never youngest. grow up, right? Yeah. And so this one who wants to do this, she's got business ideas going through her head. She's got uh, the marketing already done in her head of TikTok and the next thing that's going to come out. And think of the difference between now and 15 years ago. Like if your son or daughter says, I want to be a beautician or whatever you call it. And it's like, are you sure, honey, you don't want to get a degree? And now you hear the, you hear someone who says they're going to be a, I know beautician is not the right word, but when I see her, I'm like, wow, what a great thing. What a wonderful it's entrepreneurial a shift. business yeah. thing. And then if someone mm-hmm. else says you're going to go to, you know, business school, I'm like, oh, good luck. But. When you talk about those apprentices, Tim, I had Chad Halverson on from When I Work a couple of years ago on the show, and that's a scheduling program online. And if you think about a lot of the reasons why you hire a college graduate or maybe why you want your kids to graduate from college is because it puts a stamp of goal setting achievement on there. This person was able to find the funds. They were able to get a car to work 100 miles from home. They were able to live with other people in the dorm and all that kind of stuff. It puts a stamp of approval on it. His program, and let's say this Google program, there's different ways to get approval now. On When I Work, that program, I don't know if it's there yet, but they could show that uh, Bob was 99.5% on time. And in fact, he stayed later these times and he got this certificate and all that stuff. And that's just from a little pharmacy in in Grand Rapids that could offer this then to other people. And so it's almost like an apprenticeship communication that maybe wasn't there before. And once you have all that data, all those numbers and what certificates they earned and that kind of stuff. How different is that from college and it's real world? It's real world. And as Seth Godin would argue, it's educational experience based on the skill that you need and not the domain of the course. And I think that's a totally different thing. And one of the things I've often thought, my perspective on the shift in Mike, when I was working up at Northeast Ohio Medical University, and after going through a very traditional PharmD, GPA was everything. So so much so, I actually remember we, in our final year, six-year pharmacy school, when we were getting ready to choose our rotations, they lined us up, all 179 of us, by GPA in order to select our rotations, right? Like, I mean, tr- tr- very traditional model, re- residency focused in a traditional model. And then I went to Neomed, Northeast Ohio Medical University, and it's pass-fail. And I was like, pass-fail? And come to find out a lot of medical schools, majority actually have a pass-fail system or some version of a pass-fail system, really trying to reduce some of the competition, the anxieties, focus more on the competency and the outcomes and not on did you get an A- minus or B plus. 
And that just ever since I think has shifted my perspective of like, are we measuring the right thing and are we even running the right race, right? So like when we think about what does success mean for our children or for us individually, whether here we're talking about academics, I think we often would describe that in a very achievement metric based way. So they, they get a degree, they have a high GPA, they get a high SAT score, they go into this level of a college. And I think what I'm really poking at here and something my wife and I often talk about just to challenge ourselves with our kids is like, are we measuring the right things? Like, is is that the race that we need to be running? And a- Andrew Yang actually talks a lot about this in some of his books and his work as well. But like, there's value in that educational experience for all the reasons we've been talking about. And I think to your comment about having some type of metric for achievement or success or completion or whatever. And I think what's so hard is as we get away from maybe some of those things that are very objective-based or that we think are objective-based, we get into this more nebulous, harder-to-measure subjective category of things, right? And so if we create an apprenticeship network and I sent my four boys off to all these experiences over a year, maybe I can't get a nice clean GPA that says how they're doing and what they're achieving. And so then the question becomes like, how do you measure it? What does success look like? Do we need to measure it? I don't know. Maybe we don't. And what do we, those experiences evolve and how do they grow and compound each other? And then how does that inform what decision they might take from there? So I don't know. It just feels like a really interesting time. Like I wish I could fast forward 20 years and see the disruption that's going to happen over the next 20 years because it's happening. I'm just really anxious to know like what is it going to look like when we get to the, the end of this period of disruption, especially in education. We talk about the chat GPT and the calculators and things like that. And basically, the ACT or SAT, I know it's a thinking thing, but it's still probably based a lot on that and English and things like that. And let's say those things weren't there anymore. A lot of stuff can be measured these days when you think about it. With Google, with their watch stuff on, you could probably measure like this was a 8.5 anxiety producing event that they had at work. What was the heart rate of this person and what was their brain waves doing? And mm-hmm. you have a little lie detector and you say, how was this person doing in the real world of functioning when they had to give a sales presentation to this and that? And it's like, if you can measure that stuff in an apprenticeship, that's even better than the math and the English stuff you're doing, if it can be measured. I, I think so. And I even have questions around like the need to measure and the anxiety that comes around measuring and are we measuring the right things? And I think you see obviously a lot of kids carrying some of the anxiety around the measuring of things that are happening. But when I think of one of my fears, Mike, with my own boys is if I'm honest with myself, if I put my ego or try to put my ego aside for a moment and say that I truly want what I think is best for them. And I'm not concerned about what other people think about me as the success of my parent parenting, right? That they go off and they achieve and do all these things. If I put that aside, then I honestly think that pressure of going from high school, I use my example, 06 Farm D, you're pretty quickly put on a track, right? You're put on a track and obviously maybe not as strong or direct of a track if you go into more of a general four-year undergrad type of a program but you're pretty quickly getting boxed into a track. And I think what intrigues me about this one or two year period, and obviously there's lots of things to work out about how do you finance this and a whole host of other things. But like 
what a prime opportunity. At what other point in your life do you have an opportunity at 18, 19, or 20 to take some risks, get the experiences you're talking about? Maybe you fall on your back. Maybe you get some successes. Guess what? You've got the rest of your life to kind of learn and grow and evolve from that. And maybe there's a place two years down the road where you do box yourself into a track, but you come boxed in at a totally different level of experience. I would suspect maturity or self-reflection about who you are and what you want or don't want. Um, and I don't know, I'm just really intrigued by that concept. And as a parent, if I truly believe that, can I hold the space and put my kind of ego and desires for what it looks like for success for my kids and really allow some version of that to happen? I think the beauty of the technology we're in, Tim, is that kind of like my daughter that's going to be a esthetician, I'm going to say. I don't know if that's right or not, but I got to say that instead of the beauty. She's going to let us know. I would say now with social media and your personal image and likeness, I would say in nearly any profession, any idea you have, if you've got the drive and you do it right, it's a whole different world. The moment you have this idea, you become your own production studio and your own writing promotion company for yourself and all this kind of stuff. Like with my kids, there's hardly any interest that they would come to me now and say, I'm going to do this, that I would say, that's a bad choice. In fact, Tim, the only place I might do that is they came and said they're going to dump a bunch of money into a college, into a certain program. Isn't that funny? That might be like the only thing that I say, hey, you better just watch yourself kind of thing. So how much of that might do you think is your influence, right? I would argue that obviously they're seeing you own and run a business, conversations they're hearing around the household, you're running a podcast, you're like obviously you think differently, right? So how much of that is them in the environment and how much of that is a generational shift? Do you think that's happening and how we perceive the value of a college education and the ROI on that? I think a big part of it, Tim, is this getting rid of the middleman, which I guess is a technological shift in a sense. Even like 10 years ago, if I was sitting here and let's say I had a hobby or let's say marketing the pharmacy was a hobby, I'm always at the discretion of how much I can kiss ass to the local newspapers kind of thing. And then at best, I might get on the local news or something like that, but you're always at their discretion and nationally don't even think about that. But within five years or 10 years now, one of my sons is an English major. Mm -hmm. And let's take him for example. I think in five short years, it was Aiden, I hope someday someone picks you up versus Aiden, what are you doing today? Not that I ask him, but what are you doing today, this next half hour to be a world-renowned author? Before you were waiting for permission and now in a half hour you can Take reach action. across the world and do something. Yeah. I think that's where the difference was for me, Tim. And that's pretty much the biggest message I give my kids is there's no middleman anymore. Yeah. I think this is interesting discussion because when you look at the impact of removing that middleman and building off the conversation we just had in higher education, like I, one of the things I wonder is how quickly will that disruption reach 
the more structured degree programs and offerings, right? So like a general four-year undergrad, I think we're going to see that disrupted pretty quickly, or even some of the broader majors that are out there. But when you get into things like a PharmD, right, or an MD or nurse practitioner, a vet, whatever, like so much of that requirement is determined by in order to become licensed as a pharmacist in the state of Ohio, you have to graduate from an ACP accredited doctor pharmacy program. So it feels like that disruption will take a lot longer to just trickle through the processes of, I give the example of the timeline from one accreditation standard to the next. We're looking at what a nine, 10 year period to see those evolve will obviously take longer, assuming we operate in the same model. I guess the other side of that coin is like, maybe there's a complete shift or disruption that happens in that model altogether. I was talking to one of my guests a few months ago and state boards are a little bit shiftier than you no, with things like nepotism and things like that. I think that's going to be a long time before things like that happen in the industry in terms of, I don't know the history of this, Tim, but I can't imagine like the audiologists were too happy about this new FDA law coming mm -hmm. down, of having hearing aids in pharmacies. They couldn't have been too happy about that. I think that's going to take a long time. I think what's going to upset that though is when somebody comes around like we're talking, whether it's in pharmacy, whether that's getting pharmacy services some other way and in, in learning the Google stuff. On its own, I think things will be slower, but I think when pressed, they're just going to skip over them. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think what feels like is going to happen, I'll use traditional big box pharmacy as an example right now. And if we think about it, take our pharmacist hat off for a moment, think about it from a business standpoint, what is the most expensive resource when you're looking at your P&L, if I'm a big box pharmacy. It's my personnel and my pharmacist. So if I, as a business person, again, let's take off the bias of our pharmacist. If I, as a business person, really felt that model could exist in a way that was as safe and as effective with a much cheaper personnel option, okay, what can I press from a lobbying standpoint to push forward tech, check, tech, to push forward some of these other things, automation, remote dispensing, all these other things. And we're already seeing that happen right now. And I think once that obviously continues to move forward, the momentum's going to take it there into the future. But it feels like some of the disruption from the for-profit business is going to put the pressure back on whether it's the state boards or the other angle I see is if that disruption really impacts the workforce need, then the educational model and the accreditation standards have to react to that accordingly. Tim, I was so focused in this conversation on the learning side and the institutional side. You're absolutely right when it comes to the boards. They might have pressure to slow things down when it comes to colleges, but when it comes to businesses that grease the boards a little bit, they're going to be in a hurry for some of this stuff, arguably. And I suspect, you know, not to be conspiracy theorists, but I suspect a lot of this is conversing right now is happening and people are looking at what are the discussions that need to happen and how do we build upon the momentum of check tech or remote dispensing or other things that are moving and happening out there. So, yeah, I think it's going to take longer than we talked about with some of the traditional degrees. But I think, again, just the need for us as a profession to be talking, debating, having these conversations, maybe we don't like how they make us feel and obviously the protection we have of the degree that we went through and the license and the value of that license. Um, but I think we've got to be open to where some of this may be heading in the future. You talked a few moments ago about 
just the change you've seen in five or 10 years of if you want to learn something, right, the middleman yeah. has been removed and you can go figure it out. And if you're willing to kind of step into that area, and I think we're going to see here over the next five or 10 next years, obviously some more disruption. I think we're already seeing some of it happen in, in certain states, but um, it's going to be interesting to see how we respond as a profession and where do the associations take this? Where do the colleges take this? Where do the state boards take this? So um, I don't know, exciting, challenging, fearful times ahead, depends on how you want to look at it. So that's why it's nice to have all this gray hair. It means I'm <laughs> on the way down, I guess. I don't know. Well, Tim, boy, you talk about the middleman not being there and you guys have really taken advantage of that, you know, with your podcast, your writing, your books, your seminars and things like that. So you're a person in a company to follow when you talk about a good example of what people are doing to spread their message. So that's cool. And your base message is cool. So thanks for your doing for the profession. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, Tim, we'll talk again soon. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes. Thank you.